Good morning again. Last Sunday, we went to the very beginning of the Old Testament, to chapter 3 of Genesis, to, for the very first pages of uh, our scriptures to see the promise of the Christmas child. Today, we turn to the very last pages of the Old Testament. Um, we are turning to the book of Malachi. Malachi was a prophet of God, and he wrote roughly 400 years, a little more than that, 400 years before the birth of Christ. The people of God would have to wait over 400 years for the promise of the Christmas child to come. Have you ever waited so long for something good that you began to doubt that it would ever come? Kind of like a child who fantasizes about Christmas all the way back in the warm months of summer. And as the, as the days approach, they become more and more anxious to open their presents. In our passage, the people of Israel were wondering if God was ever going to show up as he had before. In verse 4, they talked about the the days of old, as in former years. There was a time when God's people lived in great covenant faithfulness with their God. God called them to be his children. He was their great and gracious miracle worker. He powerfully watched over them and shepherded them and protected them from their enemies. But that was over 500 years ago. And in the 500 years, uh, uh, the, the nation of Israel was split into two. There was a first a northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and then the southern kingdom called Judah. And first the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians in 722 B.C., and then in 586 B.C., the the southern kingdom uh, fell to the the Babylonians, and and King Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem and, and destroyed the temple. But God had promised that he would raise up someone to uh, come and conquer the Babylonians. It came from an unlikely source. King Cyrus, the Persian, came and uh, he delivered God's people and he allowed them to return to their land and he even provided resources, funds, in order for them to rebuild the temple. And so in 516 B.C., the temple was rebuilt. But not all things were right. The priests and the people were far from God. There was injustice rampant in the land, and the temple worship was just full of ritual. There was no heart behind it. Enter the prophet Malachi. He had harsh words for the people of God and uh, the beliefs and the practices that they were following, but he also spoke of renewal. God would make all things right. He would first send someone to represent him, and then the Lord himself would come. But would they want him when he came? Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, we will read through chapter 3, verse 5. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure 
the day of his coming. And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord. Of hosts. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. We, we know they're ancient, but they, they're also so true today. We need to hear from you. Help us by your Holy Spirit to comprehend what you would have us to learn Uh, Not just learn, but to press deep into our own lives. Uh, We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this Advent sermon is titled, The Lord Will Come. You know, in in Malachi's day, the the prophet, he, uh, the covenant people of God were living as if God didn't exist, or if he did exist, that he really didn't care much about how they were living. And it's true, if you look at today, that's kind of how many people live. They live as if God doesn't exist. Or if, he, or if he does, he's really not all that concerned with how we live today. Malachi spoke to a small remnant of God's people that had returned from exile um, about a hundred years earlier. The second temple had been built, but the glory of God had never returned to it. And so their impatience had grown into outright denial of God. But in our passage, there's a promise of hope to come. Verse 4 speaks of a time to come when the offerings will be pleasing to the Lord, as in days of old. The God who seems distant, the God who appears not to care, he will come. As Malachi says in verse 1, the Lord you seek is coming. But Malachi warns, don't be so sure you will welcome him when he gets there. You aren't prepared for him. So you need to be made ready. The people of God aren't prepared for what God must do. But amazingly and graciously, God promises to do whatever is necessary for his people to be restored to him. What we'll see this morning is that because God is faithful to his covenant promises, he comes to us in our unworthiness to make us people of great worth. That is what Christmas is about, and that's what Malachi is pointing us to this morning. We're going to divide our time in two areas. First, the problem, then the promise. The problem, then the promise. Malachi gives us a problem. It's written in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 17. He writes, You have wearied the Lord with your words. Now, remember when we read the word, uh, the word Lord in the Old Testament, sometimes it's all capitals, capital L-O-R-D. Uh, that's the, the Hebrew word, Yahweh. Uh, that's, that's a name. That's God's name. 
God revealed himself to his covenant people, the people he treasured. He says, you need to know my name. My name is Yahweh. I'm the one who's rescued and delivered you. That's the covenant name, the personal name of God, the God who has brought his people into a relationship with him. But what we see here is that is that that relationship is at a breaking point. The people of Yahweh have wearied him. Now, a couple quick points. First, Malachi is speaking metaphorically here. Uh, God does not get tired, right? It's not like he gets to the end of his work day and needs to sit down on the couch, right? Uh, God is not uh, wearied in that sense. And second, I must iterate that, that God is not wearied when his people pray to him or when his people come to them in their hurt and in their sorrow uh, to come to him for relief. God is never wearied when his people do those things. When the word weary shows up in Scripture, it always relates to the sins of God's people, wearying God. Now, those of you who have been parents of teenagers, you kind of have a sense what this weariness is about. Uh, and for those of you with younger kids, you need to be on the lookout, though uh, I know this is not in all cases, but more chances than not. Um, there's a day coming when your child's emotional and relational maturity will not keep pace with their physical maturity. And so parents find themselves scratching their heads saying, I love my child so much. I wish I could get that across to, to my child. But, but somehow they think that, that I'm the enemy. Someday perhaps they'll appreciate that I had rules in, in our family. Maybe they'll be thankful for the discipline I gave them. But oh, how I wish they would draw near to me now. That we could have a strong relationship now. That they would love and honor me with their lives. What we see here is that Yahweh has treasured his people. He has showered them with generations of favor. He gave them good laws to to help rule them and protect them. And he even gave them a temple. So when they broke those commands, they'd have a place to go in order to have their sins forgiven. The problem that we read elsewhere in Malachi is that the people's hearts have become hard to God. They, they assume that because they now have the rebuilt temple and they're now going through the religious motions of having sacrifices in the temple, that they are somehow they've sufficed in their worship. But what Malachi shows us, what I think we know in our own hearts, is that half-hearted worship is not what God is worthy of. You go back into Malachi chapter 1. Listen to these words. It's 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 It's... Poetic and yet um, confounding. God writes, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. And then he says, 
Oh, that there were one among you that would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. The people of God have made a mockery of God and his holy place. Instead of bringing their best animals, what do they bring? They bring the rejects, things they don't even want themselves. The blind animals, the sick ones, the lame ones. God calls them out on me. He says, you wouldn't give those to your earthly governors, would you? So why on earth would you even bring them into my house? But we all know what it's like to go through the motions, to take God for granted and his loving care for us, to offer God your leftovers when he's deserving of your very best, to, to pray words, but while you're praying them, not even thinking that you're actually talking to God. Have you ever done that? I have. To feel like you've done your part simply because you just showed up at a church service. The children of God have wearied God who loves them. But it's as if they don't even know what they're doing, right? We see that in, in the, the prophet writes, but you say, how have we wearied him? Right? They don't even know what they're doing. They're blind to their own wearying of God. Uh, Yahweh responds with two replies in verse 17. You see it there? He says, by asking everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. By saying, rather, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? The people are living as if God doesn't even exist. You get that? See, the rebuilt temple had been there for decades, but God's presence wasn't there as before. And so the people mistook the fact that his glory wasn't there for for his lack of interest or care upon them. And so they were going to just live as if honoring him didn't matter. There's no longer any absolutes of good or evil. They, they just did what their hard hearts felt like doing. And because of this, injustice filled the lands. We see that. Not only were they disregarding God, but they were disregarding their fellow citizens. In verse 5, we read, that, we read of sorcery and, and adultery that was rampant. The people, they oppressed um, others in the workplace. Widows and orphans were being cast aside. And the aliens, the sojourners that were living in the land, they were being mistreated. This is what happens when people, when countries, begin to live as if there is no God above. And that he doesn't care for how people made in his image live. The collective belief of that day was that it must be okay because God hasn't done anything about it. Though they would say, I believe in God. They were living as if they did, right? They were living as practical atheists. And we can do that too. Basically, their question is, how can you be their God if evil exists? And that's a question that people have had to think through for, for centuries. It keeps many from believing in God. I had to wrestle with that question myself before I could turn in faith to Christ. How can a good God permit evil? How can it be that the righteous do suffer evil? 
And it's true, right? When you find difficulties coming into your life, you find hardships coming into your life, you find yourself hemmed in by cruelty or injustice. Is there not the tendency to question God? Where are you? God, I've been doing my part. Don't you see what I've been doing? And this is all I get? Well, I guess I'm going to change how I live. I'm going to start living for me. Take care of, take care of number one. After all, no one else is looking out for me. Now, philosophers have a name for the philosophical response to that question. It's called a theodicy. A theodicy. A theodicy is a rational answer to the question, how can a good God permit evil? But you need to notice something here. Neither Malachi nor God gives a rational answer to their questioning. They do not give a theodicy. They give them something even greater, though. That's our second point, the promise. And we need to notice that God does not respond to the people with a theodicy. He doesn't give them a philosophical response, but rather a promise. The answer to your question lies in the future, is what he says. We read that promise in chapter 3, verse 1. It's now God who's speaking. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. God says, But wait, you, you think I'm not interested? You think I'm immune to what's going on in the world? You think I don't care about what's being done to people made in my image by people who claim to know me? You think I don't care? You think I won't do anything? He said, just wait. I'm coming down. But don't be so sure you're going to like it when I get there. You need to be prepared for me, for you're not ready. But, For all who do prepare themselves for me, I will make you right and I will bring you back to me. That's his promise here. He says that he is coming, but first he must send someone he calls my messenger. Who is this? Well, Jesus himself answers the questions over 400 years later. He says it's none other than John the Baptist. You can read of that in Matthew 11, verse 10, where Jesus says, This is he of whom it is written. And then he quotes of this passage, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Then he adds, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, if you know your Bibles, you know that John the Baptist is second cousin of Jesus. His mother, Elizabeth, was Jesus's mother, Mary's cousin. He was born to prepare the way of the Lord. He went out into the wilderness and called God's people to come out to him. He baptized them with what? A baptism of repentance. Turn away from your false and fake religious worship and be ready to receive the Lord. You know, repentance is necessary in order to restore a relationship. Imagine this. Imagine uh, you have a friend. And you really, really hurt this friend. I don't know what you did. You said something. You didn't do something you were supposed to. And you hurt your friend. Imagine you invite your friend over to your house for lunch. 
And yet you don't even, you don't even raise the subject. You, you, you try to act as if uh, nothing ever happened. And you expect your friend to go back to that time before you offended her and, and just begin from there. Would your friend not rightly be dismayed with you? Of course. What she would want from you is to take time to admit, admit what you've done and to work through a process of dialogue where for true forgiveness can take place and, and then begin again from where you were. How much more so God, whom all of us have offended. We're all in need of repentance. He says, my messenger comes to prepare the way. The imagery here is of a king who's about ready to return from, from a, a military conquest or travels. The people need to hear that the king is coming so they can be ready to receive their king so that he can be placed back on his rightful throne. And when the preparations are complete, then another will come. Who is this? I look at the second half of, of verse 1. We read, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, we see the first instance of Lord in here is with uh, just one capital L. It's not all capital L-O-R-D. So uh, the actual Hebrew word here is Adonai. Adonai means to to rule with power. Um, This is a name that's often used of God himself. God is our Adonai, the one who rules in power. And then we also read that this... Lord, as Adonai, is also called the messenger of the covenant. Please know this. If you have peace with God, it's because you have been brought into his covenant. You are in a covenant relationship with God on high. So God speaks through Malachi and tells us of the birth of Christ, the Son of God. The rightful Lord has come into his kingdom and uh, he was born to sit on this throne. And yes, he's come to fulfill the covenant, to give his life, to to cleanse God's people, to make them right, to purify them, to gather in God's people, that they can now be a people who are able to praise God for their in right relationship with them. That's who's coming. Have you ever hoped for something to arrive, but when it came... uh, You realized it was more than you had expected and not in such a good way. Uh, Or it forced you to make drastic changes you weren't expecting. Maybe it was that new refrigerator, a little bit bigger one. When you got it home, it wouldn't fit where the old one was. And now you got to replace the cabinets, too. Some of you might like that problem, right? Malachi warns his listeners and us, too. He says, be careful when he comes. He won't be who you want him to be. We pick up on this in verse 1. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come. And then in verse 2, but who can endure the days of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? It's a rhetorical question, right? What's the appropriate answer? Who can endure his coming? Who can stand when he appears? No one. That's the point. Now, if you were to take a poll in Malachi's day and you were to ask the people, you were to say, all right, buddy, everybody gather around. 
Who here would, um, would like the Lord to appear and be present with us? Uh, everybody would say, yes, yes, bring the Lord. We want to see the Lord. Consider in Jesus' day, too, there were all, many people were waiting for the Messiah. If you were to stand up and say, who here would like the Lord to come? They would, they would, they would all say, yes, yes, we're waiting for him. But in the end, when the Messiah did come, he wasn't the one that they were wanting, right? They said, give us another one. We don't like this one. A suffering Messiah. And so to today, if you were to ask people, would you like God to come and make his presence known? I think most people, even if they're not all that religious, they have some idea of a God above. They say, well, well yeah, sure, I'd like to have God come, but can, can he wait till next Wednesday? I got an important business trip. The problem with people from every generation is that we think God is one of us, that, that we need to change for him, that he can dwell with us just as we are. But that's not the message of Scripture. Look back to the Exodus, long before these, this encounter with God and his, and his people. Um, Moses delivered God's people out of bondage in Egypt, and they found them, themselves around Mount Sinai. God was up there giving the law, and they, the people heard God speaking in the thunder, and it was so full of fear, and they said, uh, Moses, why don't you go up and represent us? We don't want to go near, right? For they had heard what? They had heard God say that anyone who comes upon this mountain will surely die. And they were in fear and they were afraid and they were trembling. Now, some people will say, see, that's why I don't believe in the God of the Bible. He's a strict, mean God. And even when his people, even when his people get near him, he just wants to kill them. But that's not how God is. That's, they're missing the point. Let me put it this way. What if I had Ebola? All right. I know as this two weeks in a row I've mentioned Ebola. All right. I won't do it next week. I promise you. But what if I had Ebola and you were coming to my house? Wouldn't it be a loving thing on my part to say, hey, 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 you can't come in. It's not safe for you. Right. So, too, with God. Now, God doesn't have Ebola. Far from it. In fact, just the opposite. He is so holy that no sin can come into his presence. And so for him to say, don't come to the mountain, don't come near, it's out of love for his people. Now, the amazing thing, and it is amazing, but, but the amazing thing isn't just that God is so holy that, that we can't be near him or present with him in our sinfulness. The, the amazing thing is this, my friends, is that a holy and righteous God would ever want to be near us. We're so smug and prideful, thinking, of course, God would want to be near us. We're not all that bad. The amazing thing is that God, who made us in his image, who's seen us fall into brokenness and sorrow, who sees how pitiful our worship is, who sees how we treat our neighbors with such disregard, that he would even want to be near people like that. And yet God has pledged his covenant faithfulness. To be the type of God who mercifully and graciously goes to people who even offend him and prepares them and cleanses them so that they can again be the children of God. In the Old Testament, God came down in spirit form in the first temple. He filled it with fire and smoke in order to manifest his glorious presence. Why the temple? Because God ordained that as the safe place. It was a place of 
ritual cleansing that, that made the place pure and holy and set aside to where God could actually come and dwell with his people. And there was a time when the priest really did work in the temple with, with hearts full of love and delight for God. And, and so the cleansing that was taking place there really truly allowed God to come down and to be with his, his people. But in Malachi's day, the priests were corrupt. Their sacrifices were corrupt. Understand this. God couldn't come down. It's not that he didn't want to. There was no place for him to come that was holy in the midst of his people where he could be present with them. Which is why he sends his son. That's why we have this promise. The Lord that you delight in. He's coming. All throughout Malachi, we see here that God is saying, I'm coming down. I'm coming to this, to the temple. But we need, what we come to realize with the birth of, birth of Christ is it's not a physical temple made with physical hands, but it's none other than God's Son Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who said to the people around him, many who mocked him and, and said, crucify him. He said to them, he said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And they said, what the heck? It took us so long to build this temple. And they were looking at the physical temple. They didn't get it. God sent his son to be the temple, the holy pure place where sacrifice could take place. Where God's people could once and for all experience the indwelling of God with his people by his Holy Spirit. Now, what is this coming one like? What will he do? Malachi verse 2 says that he is like two things we really don't know much of today. He is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. When gold and silver were mined, the ore you take up out of the ground, it wasn't pure. You had to place it in a crucible. And then you would stick the, the silver ore in this crucible in a very, very hot fire. And it would melt the silver. And the impurities would rise to the top and they would be scooped off. When, when the refiner could see his own reflection in the molten silver, he knew that it was pure. Now, the fuller soap, this isn't like your run-of-the-day ivory soap, you know. Uh, Leslie has a friend who started a soap company in Southampton. We got some soap samples. They're just luxurious. I mean, they're so nice. One of them smells like chai, you know. I mean, come on. Woo, that's wonderful. Uh, this is not that kind of soap. This is lye soap. Uh, it's, it was used to make newly made cloth white. It would come out off-white in the process, but then they would use this fuller soap. And they would turn the cloth white. But part of the process was they would take the cloth and this soap and they would beat the cloth against rocks in order to make it white. Malachi says that when the Lord comes, he will be like this for his people. Yikes. Now, this language is not literal. Jesus didn't come and melt people. Uh, he doesn't beat us against rocks and rub lie in our faces, right? This is a spiritual transformation that he has in mind. How do we know this? Because of what the results are. The results of God's powerful work in his people through Jesus is, one, they will become righteous. That is, they will be made clean in God's sight. Uh, and two, their worship will become genuine and pleasing. We read this in verses 3 and 4. Look at this. Jesus will sit. He will sit as a refiner 
and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. A couple quick points. I hope you see this. This is God's work in his people, not God's people doing this work. This is a gracious work of God doing what we cannot do ourselves for us through Jesus Christ. Because God is faithful to his covenant, he will provide all that is needed so his covenant people will not be without him. Two, if this is Christ, how will he fulfill this work? Some would say, well, it was his teachings he gave us. No, God's been teaching his people for generation upon generation and they still largely refused. Jesus fulfilled this for God's people by taking the refiner's fire upon himself, by allowing the, the fuller's soap to be used on himself. The cross of Christ is like the fuller's soap. Upon the cross, Christ has cleansed us. He has taken his sins upon him and they've been uh, washed off of him because of his perfect righteousness and his sacrifice. And therefore, we have now become perfectly pure white garments of his righteousness. The cross of Christ is also like a refiner's fire upon the cross. Cross Jesus took our impurities, our sins upon himself, and he entered into a crucible, into the fire. Our sins were, in a sense, burned off from him as he hung and died there. And what's the end result? Well, just as a refiner of silver knows and looks into into the molten silver and sees his own reflection. What is it that Christ has done for us? He has given us such a great purity in his refining of his fire that when he looks into us, he sees himself. That's what God has promised to do for us. You know, what I need in my life, I don't need a better Mark. I need Christ in Mark. I don't need Christ to see Mark smiling. I need Christ to see himself smiling through me. That's what God promises here for those who turn and trust in Christ. Christ's purification. Remember the theodicy? How can a good God permit evil? God doesn't give us an argument. He gives us a person. To those who question Uh, How can a good God exist if there's evil in this world? The answer must be, look to the cross. Look to what Christ has done for us. The answer must be, he must care. He sent his son, who suffered great injustice, who was innocently and falsely accused. For all the times that you are in hardship and trial and you're tempted to say, where is God? He must not care. Doesn't he see the injustices going on around me? We need to look back to the cross and be reminded for all those who say, where is the God of justice? 
He doesn't give you a philosophical answer. He gives you his son. And that should be good enough. But you may say, but Mark, evil still exists. Will not God do something? In verse 5, Yahweh says that he's also drawing near for judgment. For those who aren't made ready and repent and receive the coming one's purification, there only remains judgment. The people in Malachi's day were saying, where is God? Where is his justice? He hasn't done anything about the corruption around us. It must not matter to him. Therefore, I'm going to push the boundaries of right and wrong. And then once I push them back, I'm going to push them back some more. There is no God who will judge me. If he existed, he certainly would have intervened by now, right? God rebukes them and he rebukes us today who think that way. And he says, I I will come. I am coming. The cross of Christ is also proof of this. It's proof that God will forgive those who turn to him. But it's also proof that he will judge those who don't. For those who, who trust in Christ, their sins have been taken off of them and placed on Christ and have been dealt with. But what about those who don't have someone to take their sins upon them? Well, their sins remain on them. And understand this. A good and loving God must be a just God. If he's not a just God, he's not very powerful or he's not really very loving. He's blind to all the harm that's been done in this world. Malachi and all the prophets in his day says, as well as Jesus says, but there's a day coming. A day that's not here yet. An eschatological day. A, a day when, when Christ returns. A day, a day when God uh, finally and fully purifies this earth and this world. It, it, go read Second Peter chapter 3. Just read it. You, you, this, what, that's what God's going to do. There's a day coming, but it's not here yet. A day when Christ will come down. And you will see him face to face. He will dwell with his people. But this day is still in the future. What does this mean for us? A couple things in closing. One, it means God is patient. God is not in a hurry. Why? Because he has a plan for people to come and to know him. He is giving humanity time to ponder Christ and turn in faith. It also means that we're to be patient, too. The world we live in is full of sin and hardship and injustice. And, and, and what that means is that, that, that we, we must know that God is going to come and judge all that is wrong with this world. Every injustice that has pervaded God's good creation will be brought into light and properly dealt with. And so what does this do for us? This frees us. To be gracious towards those who have harmed us. For we know what? That judgment is in God's hands, not in our hands. We know that God is merciful. We know that we've been treated in such a way of grace and mercy. Therefore, so too we are to treat others. And it also means that if, if he's returning, we need to be prepared for him. You know, Advent is more than just a time for us to prepare for Christ's birth and celebrating that moment. It's a, it's a time for us to prepare for his return. When I was a young boy, I used to have the hardest time falling asleep on Christmas Eve. I don't know if you had that problem as a child. 
My brother and I, we'd wake up really early in the morning. Parents didn't even get a chance to pour a cup of coffee. And we're already trying to grab the presents from under the tree and rip them open. We got a little bit older. My parents started letting us open one present on Christmas Eve. I think they thought if we could just get one done, you know, that the anxiousness would be gone. That we would uh, not be clamoring so early in the morning to, to get to the rest of them. Then a few more years, we opened every present on Christmas Eve. <laughs> now, I got a child of mine in the room here, so I need to say this. No, no, we're not going to do that in our household. I'm sorry. All right, maybe if you smile enough. All right. Um, you know, in our house, though we might want to open those presents that are under the tree, they are wrapped and kept there for the special day, the day when we celebrate Christ's birth. In another more important way, God has wrapped a present, so to speak, and put it under the tree of our lives. And, and, and that's the, the, the day of his coming. We don't know when that is, but it's promised to us. Someday we will open that present. But for now, though we would like that day to be today, though we would like to open up the present that brings Christ back, to bring the restoration of this world, to bring us to full sanctification in God's presence, we must wait. And as we wait, we must prepare ourselves. For the Christian, what does this look like? For the Christian, we come to realize that every day is a day of repentance in faith. On the one hand, we know that Christ has gone to the cross, and as he looks at us, he sees a reflection of his own image in us. He has fully made us clean and pure. Positionally, in God's eyes, we are just as pure and holy and good as Jesus Christ is right now. But on the other hand, we also know that we're not yet that person Christ is going to make us to be on that day when he returns. It should confound us that having the grace we have, that we still say the things that we say to want people we love, that we still are reluctant to step out and care for somebody around us, and we would rather just sit around and take care of our own needs. We still aren't the people we know we should be. And that's why for the Christian, every day is to be a day of repentance, coming to God and say, I don't know why you chose me, but I'm so thankful that you've forgiven me and given me grace upon grace. Forgive these sins from this day. That's how we are to prepare for the return of our Savior. And as we repent, and, and as we long for the day of Christ's return, to finish the work he's mercifully begun in us, he makes us more and more like Christ. So that John's words will be true. When we see him, we will be like him. Understand this. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come. The messenger of the covenant that you delight in, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promises we see here. That first advent points to a second advent. Oh, we long for that day. Maranatha, come Lord. We long for the day that you return. Um, but we're also thankful that you're patient, that you allow us to spend time with those we love who, who don't know of the Lord Jesus, that you give us time to share the good news of what Christmas means. Christmas points to Easter, 
And it also points to a return of a Savior. We pray that we would be preparing ourselves for your return. May this Advent season be a time of delighting in our Savior and the work he's doing for us. And as we gather around this table, may you meet us and draw near to us because of the cleansing work you've done through us in Christ Jesus. Amen.